The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the Greek way and the Roman way. Well, what are we talking about here? There's a way that things are done in this world. Things that involve culture, society, and political operations. And what's been done in this world is all things lead to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. That's what largely has been done with society. Our modern society is based upon many of the precepts of Rome. But not just Rome, Greece, the Greek civilization before that, the Hellenistic ways of things. This is the true source of where culture comes from and our arts come from, the Greek. Now the Romans... They, they were very good at certain things. And they adopted much of the Greek cultural aspects of things, especially their mythology. And they Romanized the Greek mythology. And they've used this in many ways to steer social order in this world. So tonight we're going to get into a book called The Echo of Greece by one Miss Edith Hamilton. And this is one of the preeminent mythology teachers of the past century. So this is a well-put-together book, and she does have many other books breaking down some of the classic myths and archetypes which are so important to this world. And many people don't realize that aspect of things. These archetypes are the very things that they use against us all the time. And this woman had a very firm grasp on what a lot of these mythological archetypes and stuff represented. So we're going to read into chapter 10 of her book, which is titled The Echo of Greece. And this is called The Greek Way and the Roman Way. And I will offer my own two cents on certain things as we go through here tonight, as is the usual order of operations here. Let's get right into it. The influence of Greece and the power of Greek thought is generally passed over in any account of the beginning of the Christian church for the reason that it was powerful only at the beginning and came to an end quickly. In those first years, two roads lay open before the church, the Greek way and the Roman way. They were distant from each other. They had a few points of contact. Inevitably, the way of the church would incline to one or the other because they were the two great powers in the world she faced, each a great power, but not in the same sense. Rome was the ruler of the world, Greece a small country she had conquered, an insignificant bit of the immense empire. That was one point of view, but there was another. Spirituality in the world of thought and art, Greece was the ruler. The Romans acknowledged it. Captive Greece has taken captive her conqueror, a Latin poet wrote. Nothing shows the Romans in a better light than that they recognized their own intellectual and spiritual inferiority and were able to learn from a helpless subject nation. Greece, in her fashion, was as powerful as Rome in the world where the Christian church began. Just at first, the church took the Greek way. The New Testament is written in Greek. The leaders of the little Christian centers, there was not yet one church, were Greeks or educated by Greeks. But that was a condition which did not last long. The Roman way quickly proved to be more attractive, and it is easy to see why. 
In the world the church faced, the forces of evil were so overwhelmingly powerful, it was most difficult to hold fast to the Christian faith that the only power which mattered, the only power which endured, was spiritual power. In face of the Roman Empire, it seemed to the world at large a feeble thing. But the Greeks had been learning for generations that the things that are seen are temporal. They had had to give them up, one after another. They were a poverty-stricken, conquered country. Their freedom was lost, their independence gone. But the things that are not seen were still theirs. Their rule over men's spirits and minds still remained. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Keep that in mind as we continue on. Their rule over man's spirits and minds still remained. So Greek culture influences the spirit and the mind in a much more profound way than Roman culture. That's why Rome adopted Greek culture, Greek art, Greek science, all of these ideas, these lofty ideas, the philosophies thereof. Rome adopted all of those and put a, a, a new fresh coat of paint on them and called them their own. They renamed many of the concepts. They renamed many of the mythological gods or archetypes. But they still used the Greek version of these things in many ways. Maybe they just changed up the names, but it was still based upon the Greek teachings. So that's the important thing to keep in mind here. But anyway, let's go ahead and we'll continue on here. They had seen for themselves that no dependence could be placed on any material good. The welfare that prosperity brings was never to be counted on. Only the things not seen were sure. How well they had learned the lesson, that lesson, their later writers show, especially the greatest, Plutarch. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. The secret society groups, the mystery schools of antiquity and going back to Greece, they hold great reference, or reverence, I should say, for Plutarch. Plutarch was one of their premier writers and philosophers. He was well regarded in many circles. And if you've never read any of the writings of Plutarch, I would suggest you, you do so. Very wise man, Plutarch was. Uh, a lot of profound things come across in the words of his philosophy. And many of the mystery schools and the secret society groups of today base a lot of their teachings on the writings of Plutarch. And others, especially guys like Pythagoras, you'll hear that come around a lot in the secret society schools. But that's neither here nor there. Let's continue with the reading here. I don't want to get too hung up on the side trails here. A lot of ground to cover here tonight. The suffering which had taught it to them had impressed it inefficably upon their minds, and for them it was easy to understand Christ's rejection in the desert of the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. If the church had chosen the Greek way, she would have found Christ's way far easier, and she might with him have disdained temporal power. But she chose the Roman way. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Another huge aspect of things here that we must consider and keep in mind. The church, the early church, rather than choosing the Greek way of things, the Greek philosophy, chose the Roman way. You see, and this is a, a very interesting thing, for sure, because they had these choices. The early Greek philosophy, the, the Greeks were there at the very foundations of the, the Christian church age, as were the Romans. 
And there were two choices. You could go the more spiritual or philosophical path of the Greeks or the more material, militaristic style of the Romans. And of course, the church in the early days went with the Roman methodology here. The materialist viewpoint, hyper-materialism, folks. That's what happened. This was the foundation of the hyper-materialist age. So, that being the case, let's continue on here. The times were dark and perilous, and it was almost inevitable that the little scattered centers of Christian living should turn for leadership to the strongest and most authoritative. That was the church in Rome, an admirably disciplined and notably effective body. In comparison, what were the Greeks? Thinkers and artists, the world called them now, then as now. Thought and art are the products not of a powerful working force, a mass of men acting together, but of separate individuals going their own different ways. People like that were never dependably efficient. Even in their very best days, the Greeks could never make a Greek empire. They did not really like working together. They wanted freedom to do as each one pleased. But to the Romans, union was strength, and that was what mattered. Mind and spirit, they were fairly negligible. What was important was the will. When Christ said, Seek, and ye shall find, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, he said what was easy for a Greek to understand, but very hard for a Roman. The Romans were wonderful organizers, and an organization is not a place where people are encouraged to seek or to be free. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. This is a profound statement, isn't it? And this is largely what has happened to our society. They chose the route of organization, of government you see, of man ruling over man, directors, you see here. The Romans were really, really good at organizing things, at uh, organizing people, putting workforces together, building, constructing. Roman roads are still some of the best roads in the world. I mean, I live in Pennsylvania. The roads here are terrible. The old Roman roads are probably, you know, uh, better weathered than our roads here in Pennsylvania at this point with all the advanced technologies. But uh, at any rate, this is the whole point here. The Greek way focuses more on individuality, the arts, culture, thinking, philosophy, all of these lofty ideas. The Roman way focuses on the gross physical nature of things the hyper-materialist way of things. And this is largely what was done. The church adopted the Roman way because of expedience, you see. Expedience and control. And that's how we've wound up with this culture we have today. It's not about individual freedoms. And it says here that uh, organization is not a place where people are encouraged to seek or to be free. Is that not the truth? Look at all these organizations that exist today. All the organized systems that we live with. The school system, let's, let's give that as a prime example here. That's not a place for freedom or to seek freedom or individual expression, is it? Nope. It's all about let's pound this indoctrination into your head. Memorize and repeat, you see. 
memorize and repeat. That's not intelligence, folks. That's not spirituality. That's not growth-minded. That's not about individual freedoms. It's all about the group, you see. That's where the Roman culture comes in. It's about organization. It's about the group. It's about the state. You see where we go with this? Why do we have so much communist-type ideology today from that time forward? Because it's all focused on the state. It's the Roman way, you see. But let's continue reading and let's see what else Miss Hamilton has to say here about the Roman way and the Greek way. To the Romans, the first essentials were obedience to authority and disciplined control, as was natural to a nation which Livy said had been at war for 800 years. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. That is a Roman, not a Greek idea. There is no praise in Greek literature for unquestioning obedience or for doing and saying and thinking what everyone else does. The Greeks wanted independent citizens who thought for themselves. The Romans distrusted anyone who was different and wanted citizens who were not given to thinking but to doing what they were told. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Does any of this stuff sound familiar? <laughs> Does it? I would say, by and large, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? We see that uh, so much of our modern society is based upon these Roman ideals. And we always say, half in jest, but not really, all roads lead to Rome. Because you know what? They really do. That's what our modern culture was built upon. The Roman way. That's why I thought it was pertinent that we get into this tonight. Because uh, Miss Hamilton in this book breaks this down very well. Points out things that should be obvious to us. But in our modern era, these things are not so obvious. To us, are they? Where these ideas came from, where our political nation state came from, from the ideas of Rome. What were Rome's foundational ideas? Well, we're going through that right now, but let's continue reading. So the young Christian church turned from the Greek way and chose the Roman way. No more little communities of Christians, each led by the spirit of truth which Christ had promised them. The Romans were their genius for organization, took them over, and built up one great institution so superbly planned and developed that it finally was able to step into the place of the Roman Empire. Never could that magnificent position have been reached by following the Greek way. The Roman way led the church to supreme power, power over heaven and hell, as well as the earth. All power tends to corrupt, Lord Acton said, as Plato had said before him. Thucydides had said that all power thirsts for more power. The more authoritative the church grew, the more authority she claimed over more and more people. Underlying her whole conception of dealing with mankind was an idea congenial and familiar to Romans and foreign to Greeks. The Romans thought poorly of human nature. It was tolerable only when under strong control. Humanity was evil throughout. This was far from the Greek way. From the beginning, the Greeks had a vision of what St. John, the Greek thinker among the evangelists, called the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The divine, the Odyssey says, for which all men long. Socrates' fundamental conviction was that there was in everyone a spark of the divine light, which could be kindled into a flame. 
In his speech to his judges just before they condemned him to death, he said, quote, I will obey God rather than you, and as long as I have breath, I will not cease from exhorting you. My friend, are you not ashamed of caring so much about making money and about reputation and honors? Will you not think or care about wisdom and truth and how to make your soul better? I shall reproach you for indifference to what is the most valuable and prizing what is unimportant. I shall do this to everyone I meet, young and old, for this is God's command to me." He never told them what wisdom and truth were. All he did was to ask them questions, but his questions led them into the depths of themselves, where he knew the spark could be found and kindled. Plato repeated over and over again that the knowledge of God, the source of all good to men, could be reached only because there was a kindred power in the soul. He writes, A gentle and noble nature who desires all truth and who seeks to be like God as far as that is possible for man is the happiest man. He is a royal man, king over himself. Even when he is in poverty or sickness or any other seeming misfortune, all things will in the end work together for good to him in life and in death. Wherefore, my counsel is that we hold fast ever to the heavenly way and follow after justice and excellence always, considering that the soul is immortal. Thus shall we live dear to one another and to the gods, both here and when, like conquerors in the games, we receive our reward. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. So as you can see, the Greek philosophy of things is much different than the Roman way of things. The Greeks... They were more philosophers and artists, artisans, people who embraced their individuality, their individual nature, their divine nature. They embraced this, celebrated it, and tried to make the most of who they were by holding fast to certain universal spiritual truths. You see, the Romans tried to negate the idea of the spiritual from the equation, they turned it into dogma, dogmatic thought. You see, they took the early Christian church, the ideological nature of the early Christian church, and they forged it into an organized system, a system of order, a system of discipline and control, obedience, strictness, they dogmatized the teaching. That's what happened to the early church when the Roman ideology took hold there. And it didn't take long, folks. That's the whole point here. And then thus we saw when the Roman Empire fell, it didn't really fall. It transmuted itself. It transformed itself. It turned itself into the Holy Roman Empire, transformed itself into what we now call the Vatican, the church, the Catholic Church, you see. And the Catholic Church pretty much conquered the world at one point. This was the, the spillover of the Roman Empire. It just transformed itself. It changed the facade on the front of the building. <laughs> and I mean this in a very literal sense, too. The old doors to the Roman Senate are actually on the Vatican, one of the buildings in the Vatican, one of the main buildings in the Vatican. You see, it's the old Roman Senate doors. Those big, massive doors. 
they, they moved the Roman Empire into the seat of the church. They combined church and state together in a type of alchemical marriage of sorts, a, a perverted form of an alchemical marriage. If you go back and study the old philosophical natural sciences, the sciences of alchemy, this is what was done. They transformed the early Christian church, the religious ideology. They merged it with the state and transformed it into this abomination of sorts. And all organized religion today offers many of these same dogmatic ideas based upon the things that were done with the Romanized version of things. And nothing's immune to this, you see, because whenever you have people who leverage themselves into these places of power, they're all about solidifying their power. It's absolutely as this uh, uh, philosopher a little bit uh, earlier here that we talked about said, that the more power one has, the more that it seeks. And it's, it's a corrupting influence on people. And this is the whole point. I mean, once somebody rises to a position of power in many of these ways and in many of these places, they seek to not only maintain their power, but increase their power, increase their leverage upon the others, their control upon others. And that's what the Roman Empire was all about. It was about obedience. It was about organization, control, you see more so than about the actual true spiritual concerns of things. So they took a lot of the early Christian teachings and the ideas, and they turned them into dogmatic thoughts and practices, you see. And they presented this as the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican, the, the whole nine yards with all of this, the, the centralized hub of the church in a unified type form here. Because the early Christian movement was largely small grassroots type organizations where people were led by the spirit and that's not what the catholic church was about you see they they wanted to centralize the power the control and the name recognition all together and they shifted the power seat from the roman empire the political empire to the religious empire merged them together and what a profound influence it had on the rest of the world. It conquered the world, essentially. It conquered the world. But uh, let's continue reading here. God knows, Plutarch says, with how great a share of goodness souls come into the world, how strong is their nobility of nature, which they derive from him himself. And if they do break out into vice, corrupted by bad habits and bad companions, they may yet reform. Christ's last prayer had been, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Plutarch would have understood that prayer. In Rome, the influences were not for mercy and pity. Cicero, as kind a man as could well be found there, writes a friend about some specially spectacular gladiatorial games he had been to, and he says, quote, They were magnificent, and yet what real pleasure can a cultivated person get from watching a puny man being mangled by a tremendously powerful beast? Still, the games are an incomparable training in making the spectators despise suffering and death, end quote. But Athens never admitted the gladiatorial games. 
There is a story that once, when the Assembly was considering a proposal for gladiators to come and stage one of their contests, a man sprang to his feet and cried, Athenians, before we invite the gladiators, come with me and tear down the temple to pity. He won the day. They voted unanimously to reject the gladiators. In all Athens' history, Socrates was the only man put to death for his opinions. His executioners killed him by giving him a poison that made him die with no pain. They were Greeks. The Romans hung Christ upon a cross. If the church had chosen the Greek way, some of the most terrible pages in history might never have had been to be written. The Inquisition, the prisons people were flung into, the ways the condemned were killed, the massacres of nonconformists, all this was fostered and favored by the conviction that human beings generally were bad and ought to suffer. The conception of God, which developed through these ruthless centuries, was calculated to do away with mercy and compassion in the hearts of his worshippers. It is phrased clearly in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a subject for reverential study in Presbyterian households for hundreds of years. In it, in it this statement is made, In Adam's fall, mankind lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. If God felt that way, it was clearly right for man to make objectionable people suffer. Whatever they did would be less than the pains of hell forever. Men need not be more merciful and pitiful than God. If the church had taken the Greek way, that weight of human agony might never have been. A cruel God would not have been possible to Greeks. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now remember, remember, not all Christendom falls under this blanket. But this is, by and large, the ideology adopted by the early Roman church. You see, it was all about obedience discipline, order, organization, dogmatic thought. This is what they pushed. This is what they believed. This was it. You see, that's why the Inquisitions took part in the way that they did in many instances, because it was more about Roman control, the rule of the church over the people, rather than trying to save people from, from hell. It wasn't about that, you see. According to many of these doctrines here, the, the doctrine there read from that catechism, from the Presbyterian point of view, man deserves what he gets, you see. But that's not the Jesus that I know. That's not the God I know. He had mercy and pity upon us. That's why he gave us a way. You see, the, the Ten Commandments were written, and the laws were written, so that we understand that we just cannot possibly live perfectly here according to the moral, natural laws of this place. We can't do it on our own. That's what the laws were written for, to show us that we, we can't do it on our own. We need to lean upon God for understanding and wisdom and for forgiveness. And that's why he gave us a way, you see. A loving and kind God would not make a way possible for us, but he did. And simply when you look at the option here that uh, man's choices brought this upon, upon ourselves, which they did, the choices of Adam and Eve in the garden, 
were the catalyst for this. They brought upon pain and death and suffering because man disobeyed the natural laws of this place and set off this catastrophic chain reaction. And this was what God warned us what would happen. This is not God's wrath upon us, you see. This, this is a misinterpretation that's made by a lot of not only Christian writers and Christian theosophists, theologists, and the, the theosophists as well in the secret society groups. They misconstrue this and see God as being a wrathful, vengeful type God, a jealous God. And yeah, it does say in the Bible, I am a jealous God and this kind of thing. But the whole purpose of giving us the law was so that we understood we couldn't live perfect, sinless lives on our own, you see. That there was only a need for us for some intercessory-type action here from God himself. So he made the way possible, you see. But this is often overlooked by people that are more into the dogmatic thought of the law, of the strict letter to the law, the holier-than-thou type people, the ones that try very hard and still fail to live righteous lives you see because no man's perfect none the only perfect one was jesus christ himself and that's why he had to come here and make a way for us so that's what was done and with that being the case this is showing us mercy so this is the opposite of what that catechism here teaches but sadly, this was the Roman way. This was what was adopted very early on by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Vatican Council, by the, the massive infrastructure that was the Roman Catholic Church that pretty much conquered the world. Pretty much conquered the world. It was more of a militaristic, dogmatic viewpoint. More about maintaining order than anything. Establishing order, you see making sure obedience was in place, this kind of thing. It was more focused on the physical here and now rather than the eternal spiritual, you see. That's where the major distinction lies. It got caught up in the hyper-materialist paradigm, and it was all about forcing or coercing people into obeying its precepts on the basis that this is for the quote-unquote greater good. And don't we see very similar things going on today still in this world? It's not about spiritual growth or anything of that nature most of the time. 99 times out of 100, any of these organized religious structures or organized political movements or anything of the sort, it's all about control. It's all about acquiring something from others, acquiring obedience and control over others in many regards, especially when it comes to something like this. But that is the way that was adopted, and this is the Roman way, and that's why it's important we talk about this stuff and we, we break this down tonight as best we can. The Greeks were more focused on individuality, things like art and philosophy, developing yourself, you see, taking care of your own needs and taking personal responsibility for yourself. Not being dependent upon others like the state would want you to be. You see, it was all about individual morality, individual decision-making, individual growth. 
The Roman way is not about that. It's all about the organization. It's all about the community. It's all about communitarianism. Some would call it communism in certain ways. It's the state. Let's put it that way. The state is what takes precedent over everything else. That's what was established. You see, the early church established that it was the church that mattered. You see, not God that sits way above any church that matters. The church is the thing that was the ultimate arbiter of truth. That's what they established here. And that is a far cry from what actual truth is. And that's what's being pointed out here. But let's get back to the reading here, because I I read through this and I thought there were some brilliant observations made here by Edith Hamilton in this writing. And how much of it's correct, who could say for sure? I think she was pretty spot on with this, though. I do think that the Greek culture had a lot more spiritual concerns and discernment than the Roman culture did. In fact, much of what we look at today with mythology and the mythological archetypes that we have now, they were established through Rome from the Greek myths. The The Romans Romanized the Greek myths, changed around some of the names, and kind of half-heartedly adopted the Greek myths, not quite understanding the nuance thereof to a certain degree. And, and this is something that's acknowledged here. The Romans acknowledged that they were not on the same plane as the Greeks as far as spiritual or cultural things go, or the arts or things of that nature. They recognized that, but they decided they were going to usurp that and adopt that themselves. And thus you get poets and writers like Ovid, who were all about praising Rome. It was Roman propaganda. They took some of the old Greek myths, rewrote them in certain ways, and propagandized Roman ideology into it, and tried to uphold the Roman state in many ways with this. So this this was something that was largely done back in you know those times. And it continues to a certain degree today, but it may not be the same exact players involved. But it is still the Roman way that's been adopted here and is being pushed and promoted in our world today. As we see here, this is the model on which our modern culture is built. So we'll take the old ideas, we'll twist them and use them in ways that we seem to think fits our paradigm. And with that, we'll create new dogmas. What do you think scientism's all about? Science. That's all dogma. It's the same kind of thing. It's, it's a belief system. Our science has come a far way from what it was originally intended to be. Scientific method was just invented as one type, one way, one methodology of observation of different phenomena. And there are many different observation points or observation methods of different phenomena. And scientific method does not encompass everything. It's not all-encompassing, as the science folks would like you to believe. It can't explain away everything, you see. Anything that's not objectively measurable or quantifiable cannot be validated or invalidated through scientific method. So there are many subjective things in this world, experiential things, that can't be quantified in that way and dismissed out of hand, although they try to convince you otherwise. 
that science is the be-all, end-all. You see, it's a dogmatic thought form. It's a religion, folks. It's the new religion, the new mythology of our day. Scientism, the science culture. All those folks out there that are yelling, I trust the science. You don't trust the science. You don't even know what science is if you claim you trust the science. <laughs> you know, the science is settled. <laughs> That's not how science works. <laughs> There's no such thing as settled science. But uh, at any rate, that that's the whole point here. It's it's all about control. You see, organization control and obedience. So if you don't you know obey certain things, they will call you a science denier, right? Uh, all these different ideologies, but it's all based upon these same type teachings. But anyway, let's continue reading here. Another danger, too, might have been avoided, less great but yet of major importance, the danger of formalism, of considering the outside more important than the inside, of holding up a form of words, a creed or theology, as a more basic expression of the truth than the way people live. Christ said, ye shall know them by their fruits. And I'm going to pause again here, folks. Sorry, I seem to be pausing an awful lot here, but there's so many great ideas presented here by Edith Hamilton in this book. And this is a true statement. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Christ did indeed tell us that. And don't we know a little something about people by what they consider important, what they prioritize in their lives, what their fruits are? You can know something about a person that way. This is a true thing. This is all based upon the old natural sciences. You'll know a tree by its fruits, right? You'll know a person by their fruits. And, and this is an absolute true statement. So with that being the case, we can understand a little something about people based upon what it is that uh, you know they're, they're producing in their lives or around them. The fruits they give off, the things they do. Are they helping others? Are they, they trying to make the world a better place? These things are what counts at the end of the day. Are, are you trying to do something better here? Are you trying to make the world a better place? Are you trying to be the change that you want to see in the world? If you're not, then it's all just a facade. It's this external appearance. And this is largely what was put on by the early church, by the Roman church. It's all about external appearance. It's all about put on your Sunday best and go to church on Sunday and sit there and, you know, just recite the prayers and maybe sing a couple of the songs and then, you know, look at your watch because you're getting bored and it's almost the end of the hour and it should be done and maybe put a little offering in the offering plate and then go home and then live like hell the rest of the week. That's, that's what was prompted by this. It's all based upon this materialist viewpoint, hypermaterialism. That's the model that was adopted by the Roman way here, especially as it pertains to the, the church. It was all about elevating the church more so than God. You see, the material thing. And this is not the spiritual way to go. It's not proper. It's, it's not the true way, you see. But this is largely what was done, and a lot of this is what has really put a bad taste in people's mouths for Christianity because people recognize this. You see, it's phony. A lot of it, the facade of it, it's phony. The outer appearance. 
that's what a lot of this was made into. That's what a lot of the organized church leadership and stuff was all about. That's what uh, much of modern religious ideologies have been about, about promoting the church, you see, elevating the church, putting the church on the pedestal. The church is the authority. They're the arbiter of truth. They tell you which doctrines that their their particular sect of Christianity follows, you see, and, and will tell you this is true and that's not true. And then there's certain different uh, sects of Christianity that believe other certain things, and that's not true. They're wrong. We're right. You have all this infighting among them, and they all have their different dogmatic teachings, and that's what all of it is, folks. It's all dogma of thought that's put there as a control measure to obtain obedience, to elevate the church itself more so than God. And it's a type of an idol when you want to get really down to brass tacks with all of it. The church itself becomes an idol. It interferes with your relationship with God. And this is largely what was done through this Romanization of the church and this alchemical marriage of sorts between the church and the state that happened with the advent of the Vatican to replace the Holy Roman Empire. Rome became the Vatican and took over the world in the guise of religion. But it was always the state mixed with it as well. It was the, the revestiture of the priest-king, you see. Because prior to that, with the early Christian church, the early Christian church movement, it had nothing to do with a type of state structure, you see, or uh, the rulership structure of things. Understand, it was even many of the early followers of Christ, they were looking for him to overthrow the Romans and set up his kingdom here on earth. But he said, my kingdom is not of this earth, you see. It's different than what they were expecting. They were expecting a priest-king, but a king rules over people, and people need to be individuals, to know individual freedom, have individual responsibility. This is what it truly means to be human, you see. It's to have this sovereignty, the ability to pursue our own individuality, our own individual expression, the arts, philosophy, spirituality, things of, of this nature, the important things and not seek after material gain or control over others or influence or sway over others. And that's largely what has happened with church culture throughout all of history. We see this going on. And, and this is what has happened through time. And then you have all these different denominations spring up, and they all have their different dogmatic teachings that they, they stick to and they, they push as, these are our core beliefs, these are our core doctrines. Well, that's all well and good. It's okay to have core doctrines, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about obedience, control, dogmatic things, dogmatic thinking. It's not about individual relationships with God. That's what it's about. It's about one-on-one -on -one individual relationships with God, 
not about the church's relationship with God, God's church. It's about the individual, the solo, the solo walk, your solo walk with God. That's the important thing, the one-on-one -on -one relationship. Not that you gave X amount of dollars to the church or attended every Sunday, went to these different religious functions, sat through all of these different services and things like that. Yes, it's okay and it's nice to help others in an organized fashion like that, and that's what many of these churches do, but don't mistake that for God, you see. And this is largely what's been done in society. It's not about the individual walk with God in a lot of the organized religions of this world, organized churches. It's turned into something else. It's about materialism, the hyper-materialist paradigm. And look at what's happened over the course of the past three years now. We're going on three years of the nonsense that's taken over this world. Look at all the churches that complied with shutting down. Do you really think that it should be that easy to cut people off from their communion with God in the name of the, the state? But many of these churches went ahead and complied. The vast majority went ahead and complied with the ridiculous mandates. Even to things like you can't sing because singing spreads the germs further. Do you remember all of that nonsense? And yet a lot of these churches, they shut down because of this stuff. They closed their doors. They stopped helping people in their community. They stopped communicating with people in that belonged, that were members to their own churches. This is a travesty. This is not the way God operates. This is bowing the knee to the state. That's actually what had been done. So they showed, in no uncertain terms, that they obey the state before they obey God. So that tells you a little something about where their priorities are. And this is an uncomfortable talk to have with people, especially people who, you know, might consider themselves a little more on the spiritual or religious side here, especially if you're a Christian. I, I'm a Christian. I'm, I, I will happily tell you I'm a Christian. I follow Christ's teachings to the best of my ability. I love him with all my heart. I've seen him work out miraculous things in my life that are inexplicable other than the hand of God. I have a personal relationship with him, and that's what counts, you see. It's not about going to some building, meeting together with a certain group of people that proclaim their own holiness and stand at, you know, the altar praying loudly for others to see, donating their time and money to these wonderful church services and events and community outreach programs and all of the wonderful things they do. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with that stuff. But at the end of the day, who's being elevated here? Who will people talk about with this? Oh, did you see this performance that this church put on? Who are they, who are they crediting with that? The, the church. Do you see? Do you understand? They're not crediting God with that. They're crediting the church with that. 
oh, didn't that church have wonderful organization? Didn't they put together this wonderful performance there? The, the, the musicians and stuff they had, they were fantastic. The church, boy, they put together some really great programs at that church. You see, it's the church. This is the materialist viewpoint, you see. We look at this organization rather than at God. We overlook the spiritual connotation of things, and we see just the gross physical here. It's the hyper-materialist paradigm being pushed here. That's what happened when the Roman way of doing things was adopted into the early church and merged with the church. And this is what happened. This ideology crept into the, the human mind. And it's considered the norm these days. Now, I understand if we want to live together in a civilization, in a society, we have to have certain rules in place, a certain type of law that we need to obey. But see, we, we do have the institution of nat natural law that we were given by God. We were given these various commandments. We were given these various laws to know what is true and what is accurate and what is the actual moral foundation upon all things on which all things are built. And there is a, an absolute moral code of right and wrong. That's what religion was largely about, establishing right and wrong. We know what's right and what's wrong to a certain degree. But in the modern era, we live by a little something called moral relativism. Oh, that applies to certain people, but not others. Don't we see all of this going on all the time? Like the politicians seem to get away with everything that everybody else isn't supposed to do. Insider trading and all of this stuff. And, you know, maybe they'll, if enough people make a stink about it, they'll get a little slap on the wrist publicly or something, and then you'll never hear about it again. Like, what's going on with Ghislaine Maxwell? Who was she trafficking children to? Who? Where is the list of names? Well, I'll tell you what went on with that. The people she was trafficking them to are the people that are prosecuting the case. So, of course, nothing's going to come of it, nothing more. But enough people were up in arms and they got caught. They had to have some kind of a scapegoat. So, you know, Epstein ends up allegedly dying in prison. And it's amazing how these cameras that are everywhere never seem to work at just the right times when all these strange things occur, right? But the, the cameras everywhere else, they'll, they'll certainly uh, hit me for speeding on the, the, uh, on the interstate if the, I happen to be speeding there. And, you know, they'll, they'll know my car, it'll, they'll have my plate number and everything and send me the bill in the mail without me even knowing there was a camera there. But these cameras that are set up to make sure that something bad doesn't happen in a prison just to happen to malfunction at just the right time, it's, it's astounding, isn't it? But uh, that's neither here nor there. But uh, I, I think I've ventured a little far from the main point here. Let's get back to the reading, because I still have some ground I want to cover here tonight. That is not the way the church went. The Inquisition put people to death, not for living wickedly, but for making what to the Inquisitors were incorrect statements. The Greeks were not interested in trying to make correct statements about the infinite and the eternal. Plato said, To find the Father and Maker of all is hard, and having found him it is impossible to utter him. And he speaks of truth coming to him suddenly like a bl flame blazing up from spark. That flame shrivels up formalism. 
Socrates had his inner certainties, but they were not expressed as clear assertions, and just because he did not try to imprison the truth in a formula, his truth has lived. The Gospels will be searched in vain for a definition of God. Christ never gave any. He called him our Father. He spoke of the love of God. He told the parable of the prodigal son, but he never put into a definite statement what God is. He said, The truth shall make you free, but he did not say, This is the truth. There is no clearly defined creed in the Gospels. Here again, Christ's way was the way natural to the Greeks. It was the Roman way to make an authoritative declaration about the things unseen and have it received without question. And I'm going to pause for a moment there again, folks. Let me repeat that sentence. It was the Roman way to make an authoritative declaration about the things unseen and have it received without question. See, it's all about authoritarianism. It's all about accepting the word of an authority without question, without flinching, without trying to reason it through for yourself or without validating it with your own experience. You see, this is what they tried to do. They tried to convince people. This is what we know. And, and, and here's what I find the dichotomy of thought here. This is where it gets a little bit interesting in my view as well. Because it's not just the organized church has done this. These secret society groups do the same thing. These mystery schools have done the same thing through all of time. They tell you, hey, this is what happens in these unseen worlds, in these unseen places. These are the unseen causal factors of things. We know what they are, and this is what they are. And they'll teach you about many of these things. And we've done certain breakdowns on these different topics of the unseen worlds and the causal worlds that they teach of. But they'll tell you this. We, we know this because, you see, our, our clairvoyance told us this. They, they know our adepts within the system, within, you know, the, those most highly initiated adepts within the, our secret teachings, the occult knowledge that they have. They know this and they taught us this. This is what they told us and this is truth. And you have to take our word for it, you see, because it's, it's authoritative, because it comes from us. So this is the dichotomy of thought. So you don't only have this going on with religion, per se, or philosophy, but you have it coming from these secret society groups as well. And they're trying to teach you that they know what the truth is, what happens, what are the true aspects and nature of these unseen things these unseen causal factors in the world, they'll try to convince you they know what it is, and only they know the secrets. And you're one of the profane if you're not one of them, and you're not initiated into their order, and you don't know these secrets of the ages. They'll try to convince you they know what it is that's true, and that religion is teaching you something that's not true, you see. But doesn't it work both ways? It, it, these people can't prove any more than the church can what they're saying is true. It's something that's taken by a degree of faith, you see. And this is one of the true aspects of the mystery teachings and stuff that I find to be a, a little bit uh, dubious. Because they're trying to teach you, oh, well, we know the truth. We know 
this is really what's going on with such and such a teaching. This is what Christ meant when he said this in the Bible and not this. It's reading different layers of meaning into things. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's important that we take in all this information and try to consider it. At least consider it. Because it is information. And it can be useful and it does have value. But the point of the matter is... They will push you a bill of goods as if they know this to be the absolute fact and truth of things when they don't have any better clue than you do. And this is largely what I've found being an adult human being in this world. The average person, they don't know any more about anything than I do. This was a hard truth for me, especially when it came to things like, uh, you know, trusting my doctor with, with stuff to come to realize this joker doesn't really know anything more than I do about certain things, you see. And it's like you put your trust in this person. They're supposed to be the authority. They're supposed to be the one that, that knows. And you're supposed to trust them and do as they tell you. And this was all indoctrinated into us by this Roman methodology here. That's what it is. It's indoctrination. Even though you know in your soul, in your gut, in your heart... Something's not right with such and such a thing. And this is what they're telling you you have to do or should do. And this is right and correct. And think about it twice. If you have that feeling in your gut that something's not right, that's your intuition. Trust your intuition. It's there for a reason. It's an unknown factor, an unknowable factor about human consciousness. See, this is one of those things that's not quantifiable by their science. Intuition, imagination, these kind of functions of human consciousness, they cannot quantify it properly, although they will try. But this is something that gives us this type of divine spark, so you, you should say. This is a, a type of modality of the divine spark, when you have an intuition a gut feeling. And usually we find our gut feelings are right, don't we? When it comes down to things that we should trust those. There's a reason we get that impression. A lot of it has to do with archetypes, and they're very subtle. And we don't always pick up on it consciously, but it's definitely there. And and this is something along the lines of uh, that statement that you'll you'll know a tree by its fruits. You can know them by their fruits, you see. This is a logical measuring stick for things. Look at the fruits. Look at what's, what they've produced. Does it have? Is it of good report? Or is it of ill report? Ill renown? And these are the things that make it difficult to navigate the everyday life in modern culture here. We don't take the time to really think a lot about a lot of this stuff in these different ways. We don't take the time to really truly assess hey, is this person accurate? Does this guy really know what he's talking about? He's supposed to be an authoritative figure on this stuff, but do I trust him? That's why I always urge people, don't take anything I say as gospel. Go out and do your own research and study and your own look into this stuff and see what you find and come up with and what you could validate with your own research, your own looking, your own study. It's okay to consider what's being said, by another person. That's all well and good. That's how we learn. But uh, at the end of the day, if you can't validate it as being true, don't accept it as true. 
accept it as information. It may or may not hold value. Maintain that information, and maybe at some later date you'll find something that validates or invalidates it, and then you could let go of the idea. But when it comes down to brass tacks, don't just take somebody at face value for what they're telling you. Look for yourself, you see. And study and research everything for yourself, especially when it comes to your health. Our modern medical system has become a shame and a folly as of late, especially over the course of these past two and a half to three years now. They've transformed our medical system into something that's incomprehensibly evil from where it was. Now, it's never been perfect, and it's never going to be perfect, don't get me wrong, but what happened to first do no harm? See, that was a Greek idea upon which modern medicine is supposed to be based, but it went the other way. Now everything is shifted to this COVID model, where everything's about COVID, COVID, COVID. Oh, make sure you're wearing a mask if you come in here. You might have the COVID, you might have the cooties, and spread the cooties to everybody. Did you get your cooties test? Think about that. Did you have your cooties shots? Your multiple cooties shots that give you myocarditis and all these other bad, bad things that are ten times worse than having the cooties? <laughs> this is what they've pushed and promoted. And they, the, it, the whole shame of it all is they're coerced with money. Monetary reward by these various health organizations... They reward this type of behavior within the medical model, the establishment. That's why you go down to the doctor's office or the hospital. They're, they're still abiding by this stupid nonsense. Put on the mask. You need to wear a mask to come in here. Did you have your COVID test? Did you get your COVID shot? Those are usually the first things that they'll ask you at any doctor's appointment or anything. Why is that? Why did they transform the medical model overnight to be hyper-focused on this one thing? They built the entire new medical model around it. And they've transformed the medical model into something draconian. It's ridiculous. Everything has to go into that computer database. Because that's what it's about, folks. It's about collecting all your biometric information. And putting it in one centralized utility. That's what they've transformed the medical model for. And this is very much the Roman way of things, to get back to the point here. <coughs> but enough of my little sidetracks here. These are just my observations. Take them for what they are. Perhaps you've had similar experiences. And, you know, maybe you could relate to some of this stuff. But I see the echoes of so much of these different ideas in our society today. And that's why it's important to look back at the roots here. Because all roads lead to Rome, and these are the roots of the beast system that we are in right now. So let's continue reading. The Greek way was marked out also by not being ever the easy way. Excellence much labored for by the race of men, says Aristotle. One of the earliest Greek poets says, Before the gates of excellence the high gods have placed sweat. Long is the road thereto, and rough and steep. Another poet says that a man must suffer heart-grieving sweat to produce anything that is of value. And Plato says, hard is the good. No one ever called the way Christ himself walked the easy way. He said, 
Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There can hardly be a greater denial of the Christian way than to represent it as broad and smooth and leading to a happy success, but when times are very prosperous and comfortable, a tendency to easy religion develops, and then the Greek way can reinforce the way of Christ. It would have been inconceivable to Socrates, to Plato, to the Stoics, that a result of religion could be a prosperous life. Virtue is its own reward, the Stoics said. The only reward of serving God, Plato said, was to become able to serve him better. Prosperity as a reward for obeying God's command never entered Socrates' mind. He told his judges in court after the sentence of death was pronounced, I see clearly that the time has come when it is better for me to die, and so my accusers have done me no harm. Still, they did not mean to do good, and for this I may gently blame them. And now we go our ways, you to live and I to die, which is better only God knows. A friend who was with him in the prison cell when he drank the poison told another, I could not pity him. He seemed to me beyond that. I thought of him as blessed. Socrates had his reward. A day or two before his death, when a rich man who knew him, or sorry, when a rich man who knew he could bribe the jailers and get Socrates away, came to him begging, Let us save you, Socrates. Your friends beseech you. Socrates said, Dear Crito, a voice within me is telling me that I must not disobey my country's laws and do what is wrong in order to save my life. It is very loud, this voice, so that I can hardly hear another's. Yet if you wish to say more, speak and I will listen. Socrates, I have nothing more to say. Then leave me, Crito, to obey the will of God. What would it not have meant to the religion of Christ if Christians had been learners as well as teachers of Greece? The basic Greek idea that nothing of value can be easily won would have found a perfect fulfillment in Christ's life. The cruelties practiced in his name might not, almost surely would not, have defaced the religion of love. There would have been, too, another criterion of the truth. Not only creeds and ipse digsots, authoritatively promulgated and obediently accepted, but Plutarch's criterion, if we live here as we ought, we shall see things as they are. The Greek version of the pure in heart shall see God. The excellent becomes the permanent. The influence of Greece died, but the truth and the beauty of Greeks discovered finally came to life again and have never passed away. They are still our teachers. And that's the end of the chapter there, folks. So, as you see, this was a pretty profound teaching on the differences between the Roman way and the Greek way of things. The Greeks saw life in a much different way than the Romans, you see. And had early culture, the early church, adopted, perhaps, the Greek ideology... The world might be a better place today, a different place, a place more focused on things that truly matter, rather than things that are focused on this hyper-materialist paradigm, the physical world, the material world, the consumer culture we have. All of these things, the militaristic way that the Roman society brought about, you see... 
Greek was centered on the arts, philosophy, these different higher ideals of humanity, spiritual growth, the excelling of the individual, the acceptance of the individual, whereas Roman culture was all about this strict, orderly society. The Republic, you see. Didn't Plato write a book about the Republic? <laughs> and, and here's the thing. The echoes of all this stuff just comes forward through time. Now, this was a really well-put-together chapter here in this book by Edith Hamilton. It explained things in a pretty thorough way as to the differences between the overall Greek culture and the Roman culture, but the Greeks were not without their faults, folks. Now, the way Edith Hamilton wrote this, it would seem that the Greek culture was an ideal culture. They most certainly were not. I mean, they had their flaws and faults, just like every other culture. And this kind of uh, criminalized the, the Roman culture in many ways. And it's not to say, like, any of these individual-type traits are bad in and of themselves. It's not a bad thing to be able to organize, like the Romans were, or to build things, or to put together labor groups to produce certain things in a timely fashion. Nothing wrong with that in its time and its place. But it's when these things get taken to an extreme that we have a problem. Now, the Greek is one way of looking at things, and the Roman another. Once again, it's this whole dialectic-type idea that goes on. The Greek and the Roman, you could say left, right, however you want to see this. It's the polarity principle at work here again. We have to find our balance somewhere in the center, because society and culture can't exist without some type of norms, social norms or laws that we all accept. And they could be based upon natural law, and that would be fine. That would probably be the most ideal thing. First, don't do unto others what's hateful to do to yourself. And second, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if, if we abide by those principles, all the other things fall in line, you see. So if, if we have those kind of simple ideas in place for coexisting together, it could be good. Help out your fellow man. If, if you are in a situation where you need help and would like somebody to help you, well, remember that when you see your neighbor needs help with something, you see, and they're, they're in a tough spot. Step up and do the right thing. Be the change you want to see in the world. It comes around full circle, folks. It truly does. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. All of these many ideas. So, once again, we see this compare and contrast between different ideologies here. The Greek and the Roman way. The Greek being the more spiritual way, based upon the individual spiritual growth of a person. The Roman way being the more organized and you know, physical, material world way of doing things, getting things done. This could also be viewed as the Masonic way, you see. If you want to get down to brass tacks with it, the Masonic way, this is the way of the builders, the Roman way. They get things done. They're the ones that get things done. This is from their viewpoint, okay? 
That's that's what they teach. They're the builders. They're the philosophers of fire. They're the ones that build the way, that make the way, that have made all the progress for mankind. They consider those that they call those of the waters of faith. They consider them the profane or the useless eaters, as has been called many times. The ones that are content to just feed off of whatever excess of the bounty that's there, that's given by the Creator in this natural place. The ones that are just content to just live off the land. This kind of thing. And not build or create anything new or novel. To not create something better or attempt to build something better. They consider them the profane. They consider them backwards. So much of these ideas and thoughts that we relate back to Roman culture, in all actuality, relate back to the various secret society groups. Now, this, this is another part of this that gets a little interesting, because there's always been this struggle for control within the church and the state between these two different sides or dialectics of these secret society groups, these power structures at the topmost levels of things. And they vary from time to time as to who is largely in control. Now, for a long time, the Masonic side of things has had a great deal of influence and power and has been calling the shots. And it shifts back and forth. And then I think what the dialectic opposite of the Masonic side of things of this power structure is, is what we would call the Jesuit side of things. And they kind of trade off back and forth over time. Who, who calls the shots and who steers things? But at the end of the day, at the topmost levels of both of these orders, they all work together. It's just they come at things from different points of view, from these different sides of the polarity spectrum much like how Hegelian dialectic works with our political parties. We have the right wing and the left wing, the Democrat, the Republican, these ideologies. And the focus just kind of shifts back and forth along this line, but they still work toward the same goals, you see. Works the same way within the hidden power structure of these secret society groups. At the topmost levels, it's all interlocked and controlled by the same people, and sometimes those select few at the top disagree on methodologies, and sometimes they'll trade back and forth as to who gets to call the shots on certain things or try it their way for a while. And we see some of these shifts and shakeups go on in the world because of that. Sometimes they take a step forward and two steps back. We've seen that many times, too. In fact, they're a bit behind on what their strategy and plan has been. They had to rename Agenda, <laughs> the uh, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, in fact. And this is exactly why, because they, they, they're up against the wall for the time frame they wanted. They weren't able to achieve these new social agendas by the year 2000, like they had originally intended. That's why it was called Agenda 21 for the 21st century, you see. It was supposed to be implemented and in place by the year 2000. Well, they ran into some delays because sometimes they run across unexpected things in society. And even still today, these people that uh, largely run the show here they're not all powerful, they're not all knowing, they're not all seeing. 
they would like to be. That's why they try to put this infrastructure in place, this panopticon control grid, this surveillance state, because they would like to be all-seeing and all-knowing and all-powerful. They would like that very much. In fact, they, they push for that, and they try very hard to achieve that. But you know what? At the end of the day, many times they get it wrong. And the idiots that they put in control of some of their agendas mess up. We've seen so much of this in the past couple of years. They mess up so bad. The, the ineffectual middle management that they put in charge of some of their agendas messes it up on them sometimes. And we see that. And we could call out the ineptitude thereof. So sometimes their plans fail and they get delayed. But these people are persistent and they're not stupid. So they'll pivot, and they'll try again, and sometimes they have to change their timelines a little bit. That's why they shifted Agenda 21 to Agenda 2030, and now they're even having problems with that, so they might shift it back further. But they've really put things into hyperdrive with the ad advent of the scamdemic, you see. So they're trying to make up for some lost time. And that's largely what's been done here. And a lot of this is based upon these different ideologies here. So you could argue all day long, which way is better? Is it the Greek way or the Roman way? Is it the left-wing way or the right-wing way? Which way is right? Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't truly matter. It's all a dialectic system that's intended to steer us in one direction just by keeping us between these two extreme parameters that they have here. They steer the social agendas through these things. So there's a balanced way to look at this stuff. And, you know, this is just one other way that it's been broken down in this dialectic way of thinking. The Greek way and the Roman way. Well, the Greeks, I, I do like a lot of their different philosophies and a lot of the different things that they've introduced to culture, the arts and such, philosophy, these kind of ideas. But I also like many of the things that the Romans brought to the table. Organization, the building of these structures, the building of highways, the introduction of, of commerce in, in many ways, the organization systems, all of these different things. These various things that were introduced, they have good aspects to them as well as bad. And see, sometimes we, we tend to focus more on the bad side of things. But it's important to see it both ways. And the reason we focus on the bad is because largely the people running the show today, their intentions for the bulk of the masses are bad. And that's why it's easy to pick that stuff out and look at it negatively. But you have to understand, there's two sides to the coin here. And we could take back our sovereignty, and we could use the same methods and the same tools that these social controllers use, and we can transform society ourselves on a grassroots level. And it starts with each and every one of us. Be the change you want to see in the world. It's that simple. It's that simple. It really is. Change your mind. Your mind is the only mind you can change in this world. So change your mind. Change the way you do things. Change your outlook and your attitude. And when you do that, you'll slowly begin to see the world around you transform itself. This is all based upon a little hermetic bit of thought. As above, so below. As within, so without. You are the reflection 
of the macro scale. You're the micro scale reflection of the macro scale. So if you could change something in the micro scale, that's yourself, you can effectuate a change in the macro scale reflection thereof. So it's, it's like a, a ripple in the water. You see, a drop in the water creates a ripple, and the ripple moves outward. And if it goes out far enough, it could go back out to the shoreline and then ripple back if it's a powerful enough ripple. And you see this ripple effect, it'll repeat. The pattern will repeat. And you'll see it further out than just where the drop originated, you see. It, it's it's probably the best analogy I could come up with for the, the whole perce perception here. But uh, at any rate, be the change you want to see in the world. It starts there. And then once you've done that and you've, you've gotten to the point where you're, you're growing and you're trying to change your outlook on things, you'll begin to see that the people around you and the world around you begins to change for the better in that way as well. That people become maybe a little bit more awake and aware of what's really truly going on. And maybe they seem to care a little bit more than you thought they did about certain things. Maybe they're a little smarter than you gave them credit for. It's amazing how when you make changes in yourself, the changes occur around you. The company you keep changes. All these kind of things. There's different aspects to this stuff that uh, we need to keep in mind. So, you know, with that being the case, uh, I thought it was a good idea to look into this, this line of thinking. Because the mythological archetypes are something that's heavily leveraged against us. And they all come from the Greek mythology. And all of them are given this taint of the Roman way of things as presented here. So they come as reflections of the original teachings in many ways. And sometimes you can garner something of value from it. And you could understand something a little more. We all need to study in the old myths to understand better the things that are done to us in the modern era. Because those social controllers in places of power in this world, these dark occultists who run things, they very much understand, better than we do, many of these old archetypes that are represented in Greek myth and the Romanized versions thereof. And they use them as programming templates for us, as we've seen so many times. And we've pointed out numerous versions of this in various agendas that have hit the mainstream. So it's, it's a demonstrable thing. And this is where a lot of the thought processes come from. It's back from the, this combination of Greek thought with the Romanized version of it. This dialectic approach, this way of thinking. The Greeks, all about individuality, artistic expression, freedom, individual spiritual growth. And the Romans, about control, about having objectives, a clear approach, a unity of approach, organization. All of these things. The combined natures of these two things, they can be used in good ways or they could be used in bad ways. And largely what's happened is they've been used in bad ways because the select few people at the top of the power structure had ill will and ill intention for the rest of the masses. So 
something like the Roman idea of organization and being able to put together a workforce to get things done is not an inherently bad thing in and of itself, nor is the individual expression or freedom of the Greek culture or the uh, aptitude to chase after the arts or the pursuit of higher spiritual goals in and of themselves, philosophy, not a bad thing in and of itself. But when left unfettered and unopposed in certain ways and let to run rampant, things go off the rails when you hit one of these extremes on either end. It's the same thing can be said with political ideologies here. Extreme right wing is total anarchy. Extreme left wing is total totalitarianism. So somewhere in the middle you find the balance, you see. And that's what it's about. So we have to have these dialectical ways of thinking to stay centered at the end of the day. And that's, that's a lot of what this equates to. Staying centered, but understanding what had happened within the early church and within the modern era here, how we've been largely Romanized, you see, sent down this one path, this materialist paradigm. We've been shifted in this one extreme direction, away from spiritual concerns of things. And we're going through a shift over in the ages here, where we're coming back to this spiritual understanding that's been lost for a long time now, because it's been pushed down by the control structure in place. And the focus was on materialism, on the material world, growth in the material world, putting a material framework on everything, this hyper-materialist viewpoint. That has been the focus. Now we're getting back to a state where people are becoming more concerned with spiritual things again. And all we have to do is look around at the world around us and see the, the moral depravity we've fallen into. This is, you know, a, a truly astounding thing compared to, uh, you know, how mankind has treated one another in the past. It's degenerated more and more. And it, we were for, it was foretold. We were told this is how it would happen. And there's many people that study sociology and study anthropology and things like this and will tell you that we go through these cyclical processes through the different ages and years and stuff like this where we go through these generational cycles where we have abundance and we have uh, these different types of mentalities, social norms that happen and we lose sight of morality and then invariably what happens is we fall into this state of depravity where it gets so bad that the next generation starts to become a bit more conservative and it goes through various cycles and uh, there was actually a guy that wrote a book about this called the fourth turning i can't think of the guy's name but uh, essentially it states that the, there's these four different generational cycles that we progress through and we're about to hit this fourth turning. This is the point where it shifts back from depravity and debauchery back to a more conservative or moral type of a society. And it, it goes through these different things generationally, you see. And this has been noted by historians and stuff. I can't think of the guy's name that wrote that book. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's 
it's out there for anybody that wants to look it up. It's called The Fourth Turning, and that's the whole premise behind it, is we go through these cyclical things through different generations. And we're, we're at this shift point right now where we're going to be perhaps stepping back to a more conservative way of being. But it's, it's a crossroads we're at right now. And we could go either way with this because there are those people in charge in society that have bad ill will against the common people and don't want this fourth turning to happen. So they want to keep progressing into the hyper-materialist paradigm all the more and the moral depravity. So they keep pushing and promoting this stuff. And how much further can we fall, folks? That's the whole question here before people say enough. And I think we're just just about to that breaking point. But we are at this crossroads where we make we need to make this decision. Are we just going to do the status quo thing and go along to get along? Just do what we're told, the Roman way? Or are we going to go back to the Greek way? Be our own masters. Master of our own, our own soul, our own ship. Take responsibility for ourselves, you see. Responsibility for our actions. And have a little bit of sovereignty. That's where we're at. Are we going to go the way of the state? Or are we going to go the way of the individual? And at the end of the day, it's individuals that God came here for. The individual soul of each and every person, not about the corporate body. And you notice I use the word corporate, corporation being a dead entity. So these are the choices we have to make. So we need to decide which way are we going to choose. Are we going to go the way of life or the way of death? That's where we're at as a society and a culture right now. But here's the thing. We can only make those decisions on an individual basis. And when enough of us make those decisions on an individual basis to go towards the good or the life, then society will transform. See, this is how grassroots works. This is how culture changes. It's not something forced or imposed upon you by a central authority figure. It's something that each and every individual feels is the right thing to do in their heart, in their mind, in their soul, and acts towards it. This is how societies are transformed. That being the case, this is the crossroads we're at right now, and we need to make these choices. So I think this was a good review of the idea of the Greek way and the Roman way talking about different ways in which society and culture has gone and how these opposing viewpoints function and how we've been largely skewed one way with them. And perhaps we're at that pivotal point where we have to skew back the other way. But that's the point here tonight. If you, you get the chance, pick up this book. Pick up any of these books by Edith Hamilton talking about mythology and you'll have a little better understanding of the programming templates they use against us, these dark occultists that run this place right now. And if we understand, we could better fight back. Because they tell us what they're doing, if you understand the archetype they're presenting to you. And if you know what they're doing, you can counter that in many ways. So it's important that we do our due diligence 
and maybe study up on these things because it's not something you're taught in school anymore, folks. We're not given a study in the classics like we once were. And there's a very good reason for that. They don't want us to understand the archetypes they're wielding against us. So they keep us ignorant of them or to uh, try to make these things look foolish or inconsequential when nothing could be further from the truth. These are the important ideas that steer our culture and our society. So it's important that we look at this stuff. And Edith Hamilton had a good firm understanding of this stuff. And this was a good book to read if you want to have a little bit more insight as to some of the cultures of the past and what their belief systems were, what their mythologies were, what the lessons were that they taught within this. So much of this is lost in modern thought, and that's a shame. And I would just like to maybe help people come to a better understanding of what's been done here by keeping these things from us when they're foundational to who we are. But anyway, folks, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. brings back the Puppycock Report with Wayne McCroy, exclusively on Wayne's Rockfin Channel. The first episode is going to be on Tuesday, January 3rd at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Puppycock! Puppycock!